You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and today we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Scott Tungay. Scott, how are you doing today? Yeah, very well. Thank you for having me on, Eric. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I've really benefited from a lot of your material, mainly on Twitter. You've also got a website that's scotttungay.com, and we'll provide links for both of those places in the show notes. Of course, Twitter, I, I believe your handle is at CourageMyLads, which I love. One of the things I want to ask you about, Scott, so on Twitter, if people go there, they're going to find your, your profile. And this is what it says. It says, King Energy, a tribal guide for Western Christian men, a way out of grievance, victimhood, and despair. Love your people, love your place, God does. I want you to unpack just some of the flavor of what people might find in your feed. What are the main themes that you tend to talk about? First of all, thank you. It's, it's uh, very kind of you to say that you have benefited. Oh, um, yeah. I think, first of all, you know, if you just look at King Energy, I, I think. So much of, of, of the Christian West today uh, suffers from slave energy, from punishment energy. Um, and I think for me, like a huge, a huge light turned on in my life. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I don't know, six years ago, maybe, you know, as young Christian guys, we, we are insanely interested in sex. We're insanely interested in money. We're insanely interested in power and status. And so we go, okay, uh, who disciples me on this? Like, where do I go to find the stuff to yeah. know God's ways uh, for these desires I have? And I, you know, it was hard to find anything. I mean, Mark Driscoll was about the most, you know, masculine guy you could find back 10 years ago, whenever it was. Sure. Um, and so you had to start looking, you know, for all these red pill guys who are total heathens, uh, talking about sexual market value, talking about masculine and feminine nature. Um, and even talking about, you know, a non-victim mindset of living, which I just wasn't finding from any Christians, you know, because our clown world, the predominant uh, frame they want to put on you is you're a victim. Yeah. Uh, everyone is a victim of everyone. Everyone oppresses everyone. Uh, victimhood is how you gain status in this inverse hierarchy of our world. And so who are the most victimized uh, people right now in the West is white men, Christian white men. You know, we are the devils. We are the, the oppressors. We are the, the evil, you know, nothing we do uh, is from a good heart. Not, you know, like, <laughs> and so we grow up as these little effeminate slaves of like, oh, I'm so evil. Please, you know, woman, forgive me. Black people, forgive me. You know, and if anyone's upset, I'm wrong. It's a total slave punishment mindset. And so I really, you know, started just asking the Lord on that whole thing of like, what is, what is the, without, you know, going into the meme of neo-Nazism and the meme of, uh, you know, masculine uh, misogyny and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. What is God's ways on this? And, and it really, it, it's been a great rabbit hole that I've still been on for, for, for years now. But this thing of Jesus is the king of kings uh, and we are adopted. Uh, we are the, the adopted uh, son of God through Jesus. So, so therefore we are the kings that he is now king of. And it's like this, this, this was almost like blasphemous of like, oh, you want to be some prideful jerk who thinks he's a king and all this stuff. And it's like, 
No, no, no. Like that's a very much a mindset that uh, that once you understand that Jesus is the the type, is the 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 role model for us as men, um, it's it becomes king energy, right? Our life becomes dominated by king energy. And and why did men flock to Donald? Because even though he has a total pagan lifestyle, the man has king energy, right? Yeah. He's he's direct, he's bold, he's he has strength. You know, obviously he's an old guy, so his strength is not physical. His strength is financial. It's social. It's uh, uh, political. But you, you you see this man who doesn't fold. He doesn't back down. He doesn't apologize. And we're like, wow. <laughs> Could I have some of that? And, uh, and, and that's kind of the, the cry of every young Christian man's heart is to be a man of strength, a man of honor, a man worthy of respect of other men. The church kind of doesn't. And when I say the church, I'm not attacking the church. I'm not attacking pastors. I am the church. You are the church. This is, this is, right. We are all complicit in this. We don't get any discipleship into our masculine nature, into our masculine desires uh, for for wealth, land, power, sex, um, we have we're clueless. When the Bible is so richly uh, filled with wisdom and the ways of God and and a road, you know, the, a roadmap for like, here's how not to destroy yourself with wealth, sex, and power. Yeah, I was gonna say it's so huge, and I I think one of the things that you have done, um, even in in your tagline for your you know your Twitter feed is a very similar to like what Trump has done, where you've taken all these things that are taboo, in a sense, about men, white men, white Christian men. Uh, patriarchy is one, you know, dominionism, uh, tribalism. These are all things like, oh, you must be a white nationalist. You're committing hate crimes just by existing. But there's, there's something to be learned here strategy-wise, right? Act like a king, have that kind of energy, um, take the very things that they're saying you're so horrible for and own it. Yeah, redefine those terms and use it instead of hiding from it. It seems like that's that's a good strategy, right, for a lot of men. Yeah, and I think that's the I think that's the big thing. You know, we're so afraid of words, which is mm. a feminine uh, nature, right? The feminine right. nature is right. is is the group means survival, and if I get right. rejected from the group, I die. That's the primal nature of the feminine. the The primal nature of the masculine is if you get rejected from a hierarchy. It's actually a, you become synonym, you become uh, infamous, so, so famous and infamous to the level of the man who kicked you out. And so right. if you use it rightly, you can now start a new hierarchy as a rejected man at the level of the man who kicked you out. So it's two totally different strategies. And so because we live in a feminized world, we, we as effeminate boys, I grew up totally effeminate in a liberal frame, to be yeah. petrified of rejection because it means death. Social death, ego right. death, financial death, all of this stuff. And, and so how do, you, how do women uh, assassinate each other is through words, right? If you call Susie a slut, well, then her status goes down amongst all the men uh, in the right. group and you, and you kill her. And now you, you, you push that onto men of like racist, misogynist, uh, you know, all these different slurs are a, a, an effort to reject us from the group. And we're like, oh, no, 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 please, I'm sorry. But instead, if you look at Donald, the dude never folds. He never, uh, you know, if you read his book, The Art of the Deal, which is a fascinating study in King Energy, he says any news is good news. Any, Interesting. Um, any conflict is good conflict when you're a king. 
when you understand how, you know, being kicked out of a hierarchy, if you can use that momentum, if you can, you know, there's going to be other people who are kicked out of a hierarchy. There's going to be other people who uh, had the same thoughts, but never voiced it. And now, oh, that guy survived. That guy didn't die when they kicked him out. That guy's actually now increased his honor because the guy who kicked him out has raised him to his honor. Like, whoa, like, you know, and, and it, it becomes this crazy thing. So you see that with David, right? David is kicked out by Saul out of the hierarchy into the desert. Hmm. And instead of going and woe is me and I, you know, just going to kill myself and, and this is the end of the world. It's like, no, he knows he's called by God. He knows that he's a king. He's being smeared with oil, right? He knows that he is called to be a king, which is all of us, right? All of us Christians through Christ have been called into a royal sonship. Right. So he goes out into the desert. Who comes and flocks around him? 400 other disaffected, rejected men who aren't fitting into the hierarchy. And all of a sudden he's like, okay, who are all these chaps? And they're like, I'm your captain now. And, and there he goes with this, this totally new hierarchy and, and the whole the whole thing flips because he doesn't give in to despair. He doesn't give in to grievance. He doesn't give in to victimhood. He, he, he has energy of, of direction and mission. Yeah, I think that's really huge. And, and it really ties in, I think, to a lot of what I found so helpful about what you're doing in your messaging. Um, so much of the red pill movement is about like disgruntled little boys. Like they're trying not to be, but it's like it can turn into like hatred of women. It can turn into like this this bitter hatred about the world around them. So then these guys will go and do destructive things. Either they, you know, abuse women through game and sexualization of women and all this stuff, or it turns into sort of the rowdy, you know, the opposite of like BLM, but these guys who are going in the streets and like, you know, fighting these people for what reason. And so I think the courage aspect, it's, it's really good because what men need is like, it's going to be good. Like you hear all this bad news, but we need to keep a positive energy about us. We need to have a dominion mindset. Um, I know a lot of days, like I've, you'll read the news and you'll read about what's going on. And you're like, oh man, like you just start sinking. And then I see Scott and he's like cooking steaks on the grill. And he's like, it's a great day, lads. Have courage. And um, I, I just wonder if you would say like, why is that so important for this particular moment for men not to play the victim, but to have courage? I think that, you know, the biggest thing, number one, it's just a command from the Lord, you know, fear not, I am with you. Yeah. That's a command, like fear not. Uh, and why do we fear not? I am with you. So it's like, okay, God is with me. One of the biggest things we struggle with is fear of man, fear of woman, fear of failure, fear of approval, fear of death. And as men, we're called to give our gift, right? So Proverbs says that uh, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. We fear giving our gift because we're like, well, what if people call me a fraud? What if I fail? What if it's not as good as someone else? What if, you know, all these fears. But when you understand, mm. fear not, I am with you. It's like, okay, Lord, it, it's the wicked servant who buries his talent out of fear, you know? So a lot of us are like, well, I'm only a one coin guy. I'm only a one talent guy. And that's why we don't go and give it. And God's like, no, if you're faithful with your little talent that you, it's just herding sheep on the backside of the desert, like do it as unto the Lord. And that mm. takes, it takes fear of the Lord. That's, you know, it's, it's this thing of my dad loves me. I fear disappointing him, not disappointing some upset woman, not disappointing yeah. some upset yeah. journalist. So, so that's the courage aspect is the courage to give our gift when clown world is saying that number one, you're evil or you're a victim or uh, it's, it's hopeless because everything's burning down and nihilism and disconnectedness and loneliness. 
And, and that's why it's so important for us to not abandon YouTube, to not abandon Twitter, to not abandon uh, the media is because we have this ability to set a positive vision. You know, that's where you can grill some steaks and show a picture of your, your nice family and, and, you know, just, I'm not defeated. And you yeah. show that and everyone else is like, oh yeah, like he's not, like it's that whole thing with Elijah, right? Elijah's crushing, but then he goes into a cave and he's like, God, I'm the only one. And God's like, dude, go back to where you came from. There's 7,000 other men who are being kings. They're crushing. And it's like, yeah. okay, I just needed to know that I wasn't the only one. I just needed to know that I wasn't the last guy holding up the fort. And I think that's why it's so important for us to show courage is not necessarily for ourselves. You know, a lot of us, courage actually harms us. You know, speaking the truth might even harm you. You're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it as unto the Lord and to encourage your brothers. You know, of like, wow, there's 7,000 other men still just crushing. No, I love that. It reminds me of two books that I've, uh, well, actually three, but kind of two subject matters I've been reading about. And I think it's so important for men to have these stories um, to shape their identity. But one is Michael Walsh's book, which is called Last Stands. And that book is really about Western civilization and culture. His introduction on masculinity is phenomenal. But it's just reminding you throughout Western history, especially, of all the people who look, they were up against it. They never gave up. They never gave in. And a lot of times what they would experience in the moment was like a death, but it would lead to a resurrection of culture later. So that's really helpful. And I think it's really important to point that out for guys because you need to be reading these inspirational stories. This isn't the first time that like Western Christian men have been on the ropes. And sometimes these can be our finest moments. The, the other stuff that I really appreciated is like Hans Wessels and A Handful of Hard Men. You can read about Rhodesia and the Sella Scouts and a lot of these guys. They were really fighting the battle against communism before we over here were. Um, you read so much of that story, and you know, I, I, it, this is happening in the 70s. But as I'm reading about it, I'm thinking, oh, this is exactly what we're facing today. There's all this pressure to uh, give in to Marxism. But you know what? Just to know there was a group of men who said no. And the outcome didn't turn out the way maybe they would have hoped, but they leave their legacy and, um, and a Christian legacy for many of them that still marches on. So, I wonder too, for, for guys, I want to ask you about, we'll talk about in just a minute, the, the sense and the need for belonging. But what is it about our culture that men are crying out for belonging, tribe? It's not always been that way in culture because maybe people had robust families and that, you know, that sort of thing. They had their tribe. But why right now is, is hammering home a sense of belonging? Why is it so important for men? Yeah, I think when you look at, how um you know our our forefathers or our you know previous generations have lived they lived in a very different culture they knew who their dad was they knew who their grandfather yeah. was they knew who their great grandfather was they knew who you know you could you could go back generations you knew your family story uh you probably didn't move around a lot this whole new rootless cosmopolitan life was not a thing you know moving for every little job and every little reason so you probably grew up with generational credit of my dad knew your dad, my grandfather knew your grandfather, and you have this like this this inheritance of 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 a place owning you. And then added to that is this thing, you know, it's only a recent thing that nationalism has become anti-Christian, uh, according to Clown World. Yeah, 
but but for the longest time you know you you would be brought up with the stories of your great men you know of the great men of your culture with the great men of your uh tribe and like this is what they did under pressure this is what they did against danger this is how they won glory this is how they served their people with their gift and so even though i would never become a warrior or never become a great general i would attach their mythos their their story to my giving of my little gift you know mm, and, yeah. and and that's what we, tr- we we still see this in sunday school class of like oh david and goliath uh samson and the lion like you know we're trying to get these little kids to attach the mythos of fearlessness as unto the lord to their little gifting and their little scenarios but we did that on a on a civilizational scale uh, for our tribe of like know who your father was know the battles that he fought know who your grandfather was, know what the battles are. And, and we don't have that anymore. We've been, you know, this, you spoke about the fight against Marxism, the severing of roots, the severing of heritage is, is a number one uh, tactic to denationalize, defaith, deheritage, defamiliarize a people. Yeah. You know, if, if, yeah. because I don't know my great grandfather's name. Well, I, I, you know, you have what, four great, you have two grandfathers, Four great grandfathers. So I know my two grandfathers' names. I don't know beyond that, you know. And that's like a great tragedy that, like, at school you were never told, "Oh yes, let's do a lineage so you know your family line and where they came from and all this stuff." It's a total erasing of like the the past doesn't matter anymore unless it's to bring up your sin, and um, family doesn't matter anymore. It's all about the state, and you know you you've got to uh, serve. You know, so, so they hate nationalism when it means loving your people, loving your place. Right. They love nationalism, civic nationalism, when it means let anybody who has the same passport as you access to your stuff, access to your groups, access to your in-group preference. And so, so for us as, as modern-day Christian men, the reason we, we long after belonging is because we don't feel that anymore. We don't feel the, the bonds of, again, it's positive vision, right? It can change so quickly. You know, if you delete media, uh, CNN and, and journalists from your life and you start following all these guys on Twitter who have the same values as you and like are doing the same things as you, like having families, going to church, yeah. building a home economy, um, getting off the clown system, you start feeling this amazing belonging again of like, wow, a positive vision and I'm kind of doing the same thing and, and other 7,000 other guys and it's like, you start feeling this amazing, upbeat, like, wow, life is great. And, and that's what they want to kill. That's what they want to suppress. They want nihilism. They want despair. And, and they've been very effective at it through, through propaganda, through culture, through uh, easy comfort, through moving people eco- economically. Yeah, I think that stuff is really huge. Um, just before we got on here this morning, I was actually reading uh, volume two of Rush Dooney's Institutes. And he's talking about inheritance and dominion. And the reason the Bible has so much to say about passing on inheritance, not just money, but land, wealth, possessions, culture, um, that's, he's, he, Rush Dooney actually says that was the basis for a stable culture to be multi-generational. You pass these things on. And so, yeah, when you think about it, our lives are, you know, if we're lucky, 80 to 100 years. Um, that's really not a lot of time in the grand scheme of things. But if you look at your kids and your grandkids and you say, okay, well, I have 
really I have access to influencing the next 200 years. Now my window has just gotten that much bigger. But I think it's interesting too, um, the tie-in with people like Tim Keller, they're all about pushing the cosmopolitan city life. And I remember uh, talking to Aaron Wren about this because he was in New York, he had been to Redeemer. Um, and he told me, he said, yeah, the thing is really interesting. You go to like Keller's church and there's the transients is just unreal. Like in a two-year span, it's a completely different church. Uh, no one has kids and no one is going to settle down. So, and then, you know, you look at other factors like the amount of time people, I think Bureau of Labor right now has the average job last 2.5 years. And men in general over their careers, you know, over their span of working years, I think right now is on average, they'll change jobs, career jobs. So like completely change careers between seven and nine times. So, I mean, you're, 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 it's just a recipe for having very disconnected people with cultural and historical amnesia. One of the things I, I want to ask you about, and, and this is sort of leaning toward the fix to that, which is how do we cultivate belonging? I'll, I'll include a link to this in the show notes. I encourage people to check it out on your website. But you've got an article titled The Three Hard Steps to Belonging, and I want to start to unpack some of this. So the, the, the first thing is you have a quote from Russell Lamberti, I believe is an economist, who said, belonging is to belong somewhere. I, I just want to ask you about that quote. You lead with it. How do you convince people to do that in the midst of a culture where it seems like everything is pushing against that, right? Being long somewhere. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's the hardest thing. I think that we are in a such a rush time preference culture, you know, quick, quick, everything comes in 12 hours, you know, Amazon delivers 12 hours and, <laughs> yeah. you know, everything is now, now, now. And so we look at the Amish who are 500 years ahead of us time preference wise, you know, generationally, yeah. like you say, you know, they, they have a generational capital and we're like, oh God, I want that, you know? And so we like, we then LARP, you know, we, we, we join the church and we get a homestead and we, we, you know, maybe move close to our family. And then when we do all those things, we're like, okay, I'm not feeling it. And yeah. so yeah. I think we have to, we have to decouple uh, the, the feelings that we think we should have by watching Hallmark movies, you know, <laughs> of the small little town and wearing plaid and having, knowing everybody and the town doctor is my friend. And yeah. we have to decouple the feelings from that's why I wanted to say three hard steps because yeah. it's like there is a legitimate equation that if you do the things it doesn't care about your feelings do the things yeah just focus on action there and so so to be long somewhere is the number one thing it's time right it's 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 you cannot belong if you're moving every every year you know, if you're, if you're going to a new place with new people every year. And I think that's our number one thing as such a, a, a vagrant society, um, you know, the, the city especially. You don't even get to know your neighbors because, oh, they'll be gone in a year and we'll be gone in a year. Yeah, it doesn't um, even matter. It doesn't even matter. And, and you almost get disappointed if you do. Like, oh, I met him, we made a great friendship, and then he left, and now I'm hurt. <laughs> I wasted all this yeah. time. Yeah. So, so you know, that, that first hard step, you know, I think that's, you know, what a lot of us, I would say 90% of us patriarchal, post-mill, dominionist type guys are going, Lord, like, 
you know, because for us, like we moved, you know, to be near where my wife grew up. And it's like, okay, we did the first thing, which is to, is to pick an area. And, and now we realize like, okay, like you said, you know, my life is, is I've probably got 30 more years, hopefully God willing, uh, to perhaps 60 more years. Am I willing to put 30 to 60 years in this boring, insignificant place? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then I'm never going to feel belonging. Uh, and perhaps I, I may never feel belonging, but my, my children will, you know, if, yeah. if I stay here and have my children here, they will feel belonging. And it's, it's, it's this crazy, simple, it's, it's not obvious, but it's simple of like, wow, pick a place and be there for a long time. Yeah, I think that's huge. And, you know, I was talking to uh, Pastor Brian Sauvey, uh in Utah. I was out there a couple months ago talking to Dan Burkholder as well. And they said they recognized something in their church culture a couple years ago was that if they wanted to accomplish anything close to the beginning of a post-mill dominionist vision for their community, one of the features of the community they had to start celebrating and promoting was an attitude of what they call burning the boats. And I, I just love the phrase because, right, you have this picture of these people coming from Europe and saying, we burn the boats. Now you have motivation. Like we're not going back. Yeah, there's no going back. And, and what, I think what they realize is what so many of us, I know as a pastor, I've felt this, but just as a member of a community, I've felt this. We can't build something lasting that people really care about and invest in when it's like everybody knows, hey, in two years, I'm going to be gone. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. So we build these, even the, the, the buildings themselves, but like the churches are, you know, they're junky. They're not, they're not built to last. Where this really hit me, Scott, was even in, I, I went to Czech Republic, and uh, of course the, the main church in Prague, the Castle Church, is ni- I think 950 years old. And I asked the, the Czech tour guide, I said, you know, this, this building, like a lot of work went into this, and they have like, each phase of building was like 100 to 200 years. You know, this mural over here is all gold tiles, and that took 150 years, and you know, it's just incredible. And the lady laughed and she said, yeah, you Americans. She said, your country is not even 200 years old. And, and, and then you go to the, the villages where the people live and they distill their own brandy. And it's all fruit trees that like their great, great, great grandfathers planted. And, and their houses are, you know, mostly stone and wood, like quality craftsmanship. They're not huge, like you might find in America, but it's like there's this sense of inheritance and belonging because they've, they've really planted their flag. I, I often wonder, Scott, and I wonder if you would uh, agree with this or, or what, but I don't want to say that where you live doesn't matter. I, I think there's a lot of factors you should, you should consider. But I know that I've moved like five, six, seven times across the country thinking like, oh, well, we'll go to this church and that community will work out and then we'll go to this one. And I finally, I told my wife, I was like, listen, I think we just need to burn the boats. Where are your people? Where are you from? And you know what? There might come a day where your remote job disappears and you got to go work somewhere locally and it may suck. I don't know, but we just have to have this attitude of we're committed to stay here. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, you know, because like I say, us us post-mill, patriarchal, dominionist type guys, we're like, okay, I'm not seeing it here. You know, I'm, yeah. not seeing, I'm not seeing the local economy of, you know, that's it. We look at, you know, you look at uh, the Moscow guys who've, who've, again, they're 30 years ahead. They've got an inheritance of like, oh, they've got businesses and they've got a church and they've got media and they've got 
you know, they're crushing in the different domains. And so you're like, well, I don't have that. And so like, do I move, you know, like, oh, do I move to where Eric is, you know? And yeah. then, and that, those are not bad questions to ask. I think the biggest thing, and like you say, you've moved five times. I, you know, we moved like 10 times within the first, you know, I haven't even been married five years yet. And my wife and I have moved all over the place. I think it's a symptom yeah. of our millennialness, of our, 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 root, our rootlessness. And so it gets to this point now where I think we need to, we need to eschew the, the big celebrity uh, Christian thing of being a famous Christian, of having a famous church, of having a famous Hallmark town, and kind of get to a place where it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to have less, you know, not have a McMansion and live with all the modern commercial squalor, but yeah. like, you know, find some place, you know, it, and that's it. It's like, yes, guys are, are going to, are going to want to move, you know, and, but that's it. It's do it in faith. If you're going to move somewhere, like you say, move there in faith uh, and, and be like, is this a 30 year to 60 year? to perhaps 200 year generational move. Cause that's our biggest question we're asking now is like, we've moved near to where, where my wife grew up. And it's great. Cause there's a, there's a little bit of, of investment there of, of her childhood and everything, which is wonderful. And we're around her family, which is what we wanted as uh, to be, to be close and involved with her family. Uh, but there's this, this thing of like, are, are our children going to be able to afford land? And it's like, yeah. we can't even afford land, you know? So, so we've gone, you know, half an hour, uh, out even more rural to to try and get to a place where we can afford land and it's like 60 years from now are our grandchildren gonna be able to afford land here and uh and be able to have space here that's a good question to ask you know because i think that the the problem with like the Kellerites who are all like oh run to the cities run to the cities and it's like i think if you're in a city you're gonna have a hard time unless you go like super orthodox jewish or greek vibes where you you go mafia on your block you know <laughs> yeah, like and, ghetto blocks yeah like, like you literally own the block and you start having like in-group preference you know it's hard in a city to have uh space for your children to stay near you and and live their lives near you in a way that is meaningful and and spacious you know so i agree with you completely wherever you are be there in full faith but now uh, uh, apply it to a 30 60 200 yeah. year plan of are my descendants going to be here and enjoying it uh, in 200 years? And, and I think that that's so huge too. The, you mentioned this earlier, but about feelings, where the truth is, I've talked to people who go to Doug's church, Doug Wilson. I've talked to people who go to ch church with Jeff Durbin. And it's funny because you always think like the grass is greener. We have to really guard ourselves against that. And I'll talk to people and they're like, dude, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, don't get me wrong. We love the pastors, everything. But like, you run into the same problems you run into everywhere. Um, there's things you don't like. There's people you don't get along with. It's not a magic bullet. I think the more important thing is you need to find somewhere where you can use your gift with the king energy. Um, and that may not be in Doug Wilson's church. That may be locally. And, you know, I look at it this way, too. Um, I was talking to some elders in a church here in Colorado, and it took them like 25 years to really get the church to the beginning of where they wanted it to be in their community. And it's not a popular church and no one would know the name of it. They don't have a famous pastor, but all in these guys, they're, you know, now I guess about 70, but they told me, they said, yeah, we just wanted to create a start for our kids. And so I think for a lot of us, we just have to know, like, 
it's going to be generational work. It's going to be really hard. We can maybe make a start. Interestingly, too, so you, you break this belonging down into three further items. Number one, we've talked about this a little bit, but scale of ownership, investment, or contribution. So what do you have in mind on this point? Yeah, for, for a lot of us, you know, if you, if you own a property somewhere, you're, you're far more tied and interested uh, in the local politics, in the local economy, yeah. uh, in, the, in who your neighbors are. You know, I live in a, I live in a little hamlet. And you can spot the, the houses that are rented and the houses that are owned. All the guys who own their houses, like, man, the gardens are great. They're building little additions to their yard. You know, they, and the rental houses, just like a block of grass, the house, that's it. Yeah. And so guys who own, whether it's property, businesses, um, uh, investment, uh, you know, uh, children, uh, by the way, are, are a form of ownership. You're owning the next generation. You, you have a, a stakeholding. All of these things make you incredibly interested in who your neighbors are, uh, in who uh, is coming in to the area, uh, you know, how boundaries are set and protected. Uh, so that's ownership and investment. And then contribution, you know, so if, especially for all of us millennials, like, you know, we, we don't have our own piece of land yet. We are renting, but we are treating our rental house as if we owned it. You know, we are treating yeah. our, our life with king energy you know, of God will provide land for us when, when that time is right, but we're going to prove ourselves faithful stewards. And so we are, what we have is contribution, you know, so our gifts, our, our labor, our energy, our presence, uh, we are contributing that to this little community uh, that we're in, you know, so, so the closest town 10 minutes away is about 3000 people. And our whole thing is we want to shop local over global. Uh, we want to get to know those people. You know, so at the local coffee shop, we, we know the three ladies who own and run the coffee shop. We know the post, uh, you know, the, our post lady is like the same lady all the time. The hardware store guys, um, right. the, the, the local auction company that we go and, and, and buy from. Like you start, to, you start to get involved into the local economy, not because I own any of that stuff, but because I'm using and uh, trading and contributing my presence into that local economy or the local political system, or the local church. There's ways for us who have no ownership to have contribution. Yeah, I think that's really huge. And especially the having the mindset of ownership, even though you're not there yet, this is sort of the, this is what wise sons do in order to prepare for an inheritance that our father has promised us, which is the whole earth. But in order to prepare for that, we prove ourselves faithful. Uh, we anticipate the coming of the promise. And, um, you know, God will reward it. And, and as you said, that can be um, in, in his own time. Eric, one, one more thing, just thinking on, on contribution there and, and our gift. It's good to know your domain. You know, if you move somewhere for a church, you're going to, and you think that, you know, you don't know what your domain is. So when I say domain, you know, you can roughly break that into four things of ministry, media, economy, uh, and government. You know, those four rough domains, you can fit a lot of different things in there. And, and you can overlap domains. You can, you can be involved in all of them. We are at all times involved in all of them. But, but primarily, you're going to have a calling into one of those domains to like, this is my life purpose. This is my gifting. This is my contribution. You know, so for, for like a guy like yourself and myself, we are right now in this season of our lives, primarily media men, right? We're using uh, media to, to influence, to, to give our gift. Um, and it's, it's us not giving our gift is actually 
we're defrauding the men around us. We're defrauding yeah. the neighbors of our value that we give. You know, so mm. that proverb says, a, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Now, if I move for a church and, and I don't really know what my domain is, but I'm like, oh, that's a nice church. That's a nice community. And I come into that church, like you said earlier, is there space for me in Doug Wilson's established hierarchy? Uh, is there space for me in your established, you know, if I come on there, I'm like, oh, I'm moving because of Eric. And it's like, another thing, guys are, are so, we're very wary of the, the, commie, the hippie commune, and we're very wary of the cult leader, uh, drink the juice, I control your life guy. Right. And, and both of, and all the people who are susceptible to that or afraid of that are because they don't know their own domain. They don't know that they're a king at something. And so you go and subject your life to someone else. Please, you tell me what to do. You tell me what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I'm going to try and copy you and do your thing. And then all of a sudden, if I'm good at it, we're going to start having friction because I'm trying to take over your studio. I'm trying to take over yeah. your church because I didn't know that I, like, dude, we don't need to compete. Like, you've got your thing. I bless you. Go crush. You know, that's this place of, of, of contribution that actually it makes room in a community when we're not trying to compete over things that aren't our calling. Yeah, it's, it's a huge point. So uh, recently I, was, I had a podcast with Andrew Sandlin, and uh, him and Joe Boot both talk about the same thing. But in American Christianity, we have what's called pietism, meaning the only spheres that God really cares about in this view of Christianity is like my personal walk with Jesus and the church. So Joe Boot calls this churchianity. Basically, like God's law, it only applies to the church, maybe the family as an extension of the church. But really what happens is it deletes every domain of being important except for the church. So, and you and I were talking about this offline, but one of the problems with that is when you get like, even like five guys who are kings and you put them all in a church and maybe one of those guys should actually be in media. One should be somewhere in the economy. One should be in government, but they think the only viable way to pour in and to be a king is in the church. Well, this is why so many churches, I think, disappoint people and have so much tension is because there's only one playground for like 16 guys who are all kind of king alpha guys. And it, it shouldn't be that way, right? We should, the church should be celebrating and pushing guys to like, hey, go into media, do that. Why do you think it got flatlined into just the church? Yeah, I, I think, I think here's, here's a really hard uh, thing to to wrap our head around, and I'm still going down this rabbit hole. So so, do, you know, take what I'm saying and and scrutinize it. It's not it's not a truth. Yeah. It's a it's something I'm trying to work through and process. I think that priests in the Old Testament, if you look at at the model of David, David was not a priest. He was a king, and he was crushing in his domain of economy at first, and then in governance. And the priests were subject to him. They, they swore loyalty to him. They served him. The priests weren't trying to rule the tribe. They were sanctifying the tribe. Yeah. And so when a guy like David, who is super offensive, super dirty, super naughty, super uncontrollable, comes into your church, you're like, no, 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 buddy. Like, I need to control you so that you don't dirty this beautiful temple. Because if the temple is the only way for men to be Christians, for, for men to be uh, missional, then David coming to the church is a big problem because he's yeah. not a very good priest. And you're going to crucify him to the standards of a priest. 
But when you understand that you can have a guy like David come into the temple and say, give me the bread. And the priest is like, oh yeah, this is David. He's a king in another realm. Like I'm going to sanctify him. I'm going to bless him. And when he goes out and crushes, I'm going to go to him and be like, hey man, God loves you. Like, this is a great thing. You're doing well. Uh, Here's the thing. Uh, You just need to, uh, the Lord is telling me you stole a sheep and you need to uh, kind of repent of this. And David's like, oh my gosh, I stole a sheep. I've sinned before God. And so that is the role of the priest is to sanctify the kings in their domain who are crushing or the soldiers in their domain who are crushing or the farmers in their domain who are crushing. Not everyone is called to be a priest. And, and this is the problem. We, like you say, that pietistic view of life. The problem comes when even the priests believe that they are king. You know, they yeah. get this ego thing of like, I am. And you see this with people giving their churches to their sons or, or you know, the church is inherited. It's okay. That's, that's kingship I'm seeing. It's not priesthood. Yeah. So, so you get priests who are terrified of David because if David comes into my, into my hierarchy, number one, the women love him more than me. Number two, the guys love him more than me. And number three, I can't control him. I can only make him a second class priest, a bad one, or I can kick him out and disown him and throw him under the bus. Yeah. And, and one of the things I think this, this ties in uh, to the dynamic where we have effeminacy in the church, I think because most of the king energy people are like, dude, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But I also found this when I was young, and I think it was one reason I ended up in ministry, like, if you're knowledgeable, smart, you love the Bible, people automatically, and competent, people automatically are like, oh, you should be a pastor. And I mean, that could be true, but I think a lot of times um, in pietism, for, and I, I've actually had this, like when I, my ste- I quit doing ministry and I was like, you know, I want to focus on the media thing. I think that's my gift. I can be more pro- prophetic in, in, the, in a sense. A lot of people said to me like, oh, you're walking away from God's calling. And I was like, no, I just, I feel like I can crush over here and that's a better fit than trying to, uh, you know, be in ministry because not everybody has to be. Because I think that's the biggest thing, Eric, for guys like, for guys like you and myself, you know, we have this heart to please the Lord. Like you said, we, you know, from an early, from an early mold almost, it's like, again, I think we were all brought up in a pietistic mold of like, I, I sincerely, when I got saved as a teenager, I was like, God, like, tell me what to do. I'll go do it. And of course, all yeah. the guys preaching are like, go into missions, brother, or go become a answer God's call, brother. And so it's like, okay, Lord, I'll be a priest, you know? Um, and and yeah. I use the word priest as an archetype, obviously pastor, uh, missionary, whatever, whatever in the ministry domain, worship leader. And so we, we, we push our whole world into the mold of a pastor, which is be kind, be loving, be a, a listening ear. Uh, don't reject anyone. Don't cuss out anyone. Don't, uh, don't send mean tweets. Don't yeah. call yeah. out someone for, uh, for leading the sheep astray. Uh, you know, all these pietistic lies that, uh, that, you know, they try and conform us more rougher, more different domained guys. You know, because you look at guys who are crushing in the, in the economy domain. A, a lot of women will say about their husband who are crushing in the economy domain, I just wish he was more receptive to the Holy Spirit. I just wish he was more... <laughs> Uh, like the pastor, and it's like more spiritual, more spiritual. More spiritual. And it's like, yeah, you'd be broke because your husband wouldn't be doing half the stuff he's doing because that's not his yeah. calling. Like the yeah. dude is crushing in the economy as like that's his archetype, that's his domain, and he loves the Lord sincerely. It just doesn't look like a pastor who's brilliant with his words and knows psalms backwards. And you know, we have to start giving due honor 
to guys who are not in the ministry domain uh, for their, you know, I don't ask him to sanctify me. I don't ask the businessman to to sanctify me and, and pray over me and give me wise counsel as to my moral predicaments. But I do honor him as a man who loves the Lord and is is walking out his domain in full glory to God. Yeah, I think that's huge. I, you can kind of see this too in the in the you know, in the scripture, you have Samuel and Saul. This is actually one of the reasons that Saul gets his kingship taken away um, is because Samuel, he, Samuel tells him, you're not a priest. Why are you trying to act like one? Um, so I think it's good to have, you know, the doctrine of vocation in a reformed sense where, you know, we have these different domains and you can be fully 100% serving God across any one of those. And that can be a, a huge thing. Um, so moving on to number two in here, um, these are the some parts of belonging. Number two is time. So we've, we've talked a lot about this, but right. The idea is that you have to be in one place for an extended period of time. Transience is not going to get the job done. And another thing there is frequency, you know, so it's that same thing with you ask a guy, Hey bro, how, how, how long have you been working out? Oh, about six years now. And it's like, okay, how many times a week over that six years? Oh, just once a week for six years. And it's like, you look at a guy who over three months is just physique, you know, it's like, why? Because he worked out six hours a day and ate six eggs a day. And it's like, frequency is a part of time. Yeah. You know, so, so for us, it's one of the reasons we've really gone hard on the local economy thing of, of even though it's harder and, and more inconvenient and more expensive, we don't go to Walmart. We don't go to Kroger. We don't go to Starbucks. We don't go to name your franchise. We go to the local guys and we go yeah. at least once a week. Uh, you know, even if it's, even if it's like, you know, an, a real irritant of like, man, I could order this on Amazon. It's like, no, let's go to the local guy. Because even that little like, hey man, how you doing? Small little chit chat that you think is, is inconsequential. Like, hey, how's the kids? Or you get to know them or like, hey, you know, it's just simple. What, what we, we don't know what this is, but it's called simple civility, simple neighborliness. Uh, you buy a little $5 thing and you say, great, man. It's so good to see you. Bless you, brother. Right. See you next week. And it's like, that is a frequency thing of like, not only do you know who the community is, do they know you? You know, so a lot of guys are like, oh yeah, I know who owns the coffee shop. I know who the bank clerk is. Do they know you? And it's like, the answer is no, like not, not always. And so that's a frequency thing. You know, are you willing to take uh, that's the other thing. Like in our rush, rush, rush culture, it's like pop in, no talk, give me the thing, get out. And it's like, are you willing to take ten more minutes and hear their story about how the raccoon killed their chickens last night, or how, <laughs> yeah, you know, their daughter just went to her dance, or like, it's those little ten-minute inconsequential things, but with more frequency, that all of a sudden you you start to. It's the same thing at church, right? You can arrive at church nine fifteen, straight into worship hear the word, leave and go, go home. But are you willing to spend 10 minutes more, have a chat to the one guy you, you actually know and have greeted and then, oh, introduce to this guy. And it's like, you know, or is it inconvenient to you? And so you just go home. So it's like, yeah, I went to church 52 times last year. But, but what frequency was there in, 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 in giving my presence to other people? Yeah, I think that's so huge. And I, I recognize that when I lived in a town, uh, about 2,000 people. But I, I, at first, it was so frustrating because you would go into the hardware store, you would go in to get some coffee, 
everything took like five times as long. You know, it forced you to slow down because I would go into the hardware store, you know, and I would, I would talk to the people and, you know, you'd run, you always ran into people. And so you would get, like you said, you'd get these stories. Sometimes it would take like half a day, it seemed like. But after maybe six weeks, I would say six to eight weeks of doing that, we would go visit people in the city. And I was like, man, you people are crazy. Like everybody's rushing. And, and I mean, even when I was pastoring, it was really funny because we had a lot of ranchers and I would always say to them, um, well, what's your cell phone number? And they're like, oh, I'll just swing by the house. And I was like, well, I was like, well, how do I know if it's a good time? And one rancher told me, he goes, oh, you'll know. And I was like, what does that even mean? And they expected you. They would do that to you. They would show up at your house and they'd say, hey, let's have some coffee. I just want to chat for a few minutes. Just to check in on you, just to see if you needed anything. Yeah, because we're in these like five, you know, every five minutes is like quarantined off. I think a huge part of it is if you get to know people, you're naturally going to care about them more. Um, very similar here. We, instead of shopping at the chains, uh, we have like a local hardware slash feed store for, you know, chicken feed and animal feed, all that stuff. And it's crazy. Like you get to know each other and it is just like the little chit chatty stuff. But, you know, one time it's like, oh yeah, we've been having trouble with the chickens. And the, most of the chain stores, they, the people there don't know anything, you know, but the guy who's been raising chickens for the last 40 years, he's like, oh, well, I'll tell you what your problem is. You're like, wow, this is actually useful. And now we care about each other. There's a different level of ownership just because we took time to chat, you know, with that frequency over time. And just like the, the, the crazy opportunities as well. Because again, a lot of us millennial boys, we grow up totally disconnected from our father and disconnected from any productive skill or trade. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, we don't understand when people say, oh yeah, I did this and I did that. Or you watch YouTube videos of guys living their best lives. And you're like, how does that happen for them? Like, that doesn't happen for me. And it's like, yeah, because you sit inside all day and you don't ever meet anyone. You don't, you know. So like for us, yeah. it happened. We went and we met a local butcher and got some meat from him recently. And the dude's like, hey man, before you come pick up the meat, swing by my homestead. I want to show you my homestead. So we're like, cool. Like, that's great. So we swing yeah, up, great. You know, yeah, pull up at his house and his kids come out and we meet his wife. And he's like, yeah, come look at the pigs. Come look at the cow. Come look at the chickens. And it's just like, this is so cool. Like the dude is just like showing us his whole little homestead here. And then we get chatting and he's like, this is what he loves to do. And he's trying to, you know, build a food network. And, and this, you know, like, what, what are you hoping for out of homesteading and being here and stuff? And it's like, before you know it, he's like, well, man, if you ever want to go in on a beef herd or if you want to ever go in on a piece of land together. And it's like, dude, we just met, <laughs> you know? And it's like, but that's how it works. It's like, guys are yeah. like, they can see your spirit and they can see that you're, you're a hard man. And it's like, great, another hard man. Like, let's go hard at some stuff together because life is fun. Life is exciting. Like we've got projects together. We've got a mission. Yeah. I think that's absolutely huge. The, the, the other thing I would say is all of this is also based on need. So communities develop around needs. Uh, I was thinking recently, we were renting a house and then purchased the house. And my attitude when I was renting it was like, I don't care if none of this stuff works. I'm just going to leave it because it's not mine. And, um, you know, and then I, we, we bought it. And it was funny because I started working around the house and the neighbor came over and he's like, did you guys buy this house? And I said, well, how did you know that? And he goes, well, you started working on the grass. You started, you know, I could just tell like you wanted things to work. So that really clicked with me. But the other thing was later my irrigation pump went out and it's flooding. Nobody in the neighborhood like knows what to do. So I go next door, like 
I've lived here for six months. I don't even know the guy's name. So in shame, as like a Christian, I'm like, what? A loser. I don't even know this guy's name. So I go knock on the door, get to know him. It was one of the best experiences of my life, all based on need, because I needed his help. He knew exactly how to fix the pump. In fact, his pastor at another church, oh yeah, we replaced his last year. I bet you I could piece together the parts. So long story short, like a pump that should have cost me like $1,000, he pieced a a new one, a complete new one together for me. We installed it together. It was like 30 bucks. And I was like, okay, I love this dude. Now we actually have a connection. And literally like every time any of us leaves, like, hey, do you need anything? Um, We're actually for the first time neighbors. And all of it, I would say is because we had a need. Like literally my backyard is flooding. And so because of that, now, you know, your neighbor, Um, it kind of ties in, I think, to the third point that you have on here with belonging, which is a consistent, knowable group of people who are invested in the same place or mission. What's, what's behind this and why is it so important? I think back to my school days, all of us, you know, we, we look back on our school days of being forced into a situational friendship group or a situational community. You know, then you look hmm. at university and it's like situational friendship group, situational community. And you start gravitating towards, you know, it's that whole Dunbar's number of 120 to 150 people. Uh, Dunbar says it's, it's, it's the number of people that your brain can hold on to who, if you bumped into them, you wouldn't mind uh, inviting them in for a drink. Um, yeah. You're at that level of intimacy. And then you look at Jesus's numbers of three, 12, 40, you know, so you have levels of, of intimacy, 70. And so with all of these like situational groups, we don't really know what we like because we were put into them. So in school, you were put hmm. into school. Uh, in, in university, you, you, you were put into this group of people. It's only once we become a man and, and usually even like once you get married, you know, cause I, I feel like life changes again once you get married. And I'm sure for you guys who have kids, it changes again. But it's like, okay, I no longer just go with the flow. I'm deciding my life. I'm deciding yeah. my values. I'm deciding what I like, what I don't like, what angers me, what uh, in, uh, encourages me. Uh, what am I trying to do with my life? And now all those people who were in your previous situational relationships, they fade away and or they try and hold on and pull you back into those situations. And so you have to almost create a whole new group of people and you can feel very lonely once you make this shift or you can almost feel very afraid of people, afraid of, of disappointing the old people. So you, you go undercover or you move away to, to escape those old, know, that old group of people that you came to know so well. Right. And so we look for in a church uh, online, and, and this has been a great tool of Twitter. You know, again, the meme is you guys are extremely online. This is, this is bad for community. You guys need to delete this. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is great for uh, clarifying values, for putting a positive vision, for getting guys into contact. And so we start, we start creating a new group of people. You know, we start uh, attracting to us a group of people who are like, okay, these are the guys who, who fit my value system. And I'm going to go for 30 years, probably, you know, and, you know, on Twitter, you might have like a thousand people that you follow or whatever. But in that thousand people, there's going to be three, 12, 40 dudes who for the next 30 years, we're going to be trolling together. We're going to be messaging. We're going to be calling. (laughs) We'll, we'll visit each other in the summer. We might do a property project together. We might send seeds to each other. Like you're going to start doing community with those people. And so that's on a virtual level. 
you apply that also to our local community, right? You start, your neighbors are by virtue of situational, again, it's like, well, they're my neighbors. So I'm going to start, these are the knowable people who I'm going to see every day for the rest of my life. Right. The five or six businesses that you, you frequent in the local economy, I'm going to see these people, hopefully, for the next 30 years of my life. And so you start building a knowable, stable group of people. And that becomes, a, a familiarity is, is a huge thing that, it's, it's, it's something that we don't have in a city. You know, the, the cashier is different every time. The, the church pew is different every time in a mega church. Uh, so it's unknowable. It's un, you can't connect because every time it's maybe someone different. And so that's what we're trying to, we're trying to we, we are achieving that through online uh, communities. You're, you're, you're building stability with a group of people who have the same mission. And then we're also trying to figure that out with our neighbors and our local church and our family and whoever is living around us. Yeah, I think that that is so huge. Um, one of the other things that is a big factor in all of this is I think really switching, and you mentioned this, from a, a consumer mindset to a contributor mindset. And I wonder if you would talk about that just for a moment. And, and, and really what I think is interesting is something you mentioned about high-value contributors. One of the things that I've had to do in my life is recognize, okay, first of all, you, you have to evaluate people. And, and this may sound terrible, especially to the priestly class and all that stuff. But I'll say, okay, this person is either a high, medium, or low-value person. And what I mean by that is like, are they contributors? This is a level of contribution. One of the things I've found is that if you are a high value contributor, then people, they, like, they will use you. People want to co-opt you for their realm. But no matter what's happening, we're all recognizing that we, we want high value contributors in our midst. The question I have for you is, why, why is it so important for us to switch from consumer to contributor? Yeah, we, we grow up in a consumer lifestyle. You know, Clown World, one of the great psyops is that you can move your whole world into an apartment in the city. You, you're completely divorced from contribution, from production. Uh, everything yeah. is achieved through a plastic card or a click, and it comes to you. And that, you know, even in their work, the work is a lot of times through a click and a plastic card. And so there's no, there's no understanding of production of life. You know, I was just, you know, we, we have a little backyard garden that we've planted. And it's like, I was just thinking about it. I was like, man, if we had to be vegan, we wouldn't make it. You know, you, you <laughs> right. cannot, you don't, under, you're so divorced from production reality that, you know, it's taken us, I don't know, it's been two months now of propagating seeds and planting seeds. And like, we're only now starting to reap a few little peas and lettuces and, and things like that. And it's going to be a month yet until we, we get the bulk of our crops coming in. It's like, okay, like I'm heavily reliant on consuming other men's beef, grains, uh, etc. And so when you realize that, it's not a bad thing. It's like, okay, I'm very grateful. I want to make friends with the best butcher. I want to make friends with, with the guys who produce the things I can't produce. But then you have to ask the question, okay, how do I get the things I can't produce? It's by me trading what I can produce. You know, for a lot of guys, that's obviously money. You know, I produce money, but, but you, you, you've got to then go back from that. What is my gift that is producing that value called money, that store of value called money? And for a lot of guys, you know, it might be like, oh, uh, you know, we're paid 
a million dollars to be a talking head on TV. It's like, well, how is that possible if there's no value? It's like, no, 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 that's incredibly valuable. It sets frame for people. Maybe it, it, you know, the value for them is that it demoralizes their enemy. That's the value that the corporations are paying these talking heads is to be demoralization agents. And for you and me being guys on media, like the, the, the value we're giving is encouragement, is vision, is a, a positive vision for guys of, of, of encourage yourselves in the Lord. And like, I was like, wow, like I want to be friends with it. Like I want to be friends with Eric. I want to be friends with Scott. Why? Because like you said, they're valuable guys to frame, to vision, to direction. Same with the guys who are king type archetypes, guys who would be a sheriff or a cop or, or go and do violence. And it's like, it's pretty good to have guys who go and do violence because they are good at setting boundaries. And if you've got a, a problem, who do you call? It's, it's those guys. And so yeah. that's their gift. And it's like, yeah, they're not, you know, they're not doing um, productive work, but it's like they are productive men. And so it's in producing our gift. Yeah, it's in producing our gift that we become, we feel like I am a part of this team. You know, I often, I often say that to, I coach rugby. And I often say to the boys, I was like, no one wants to be the guy who is carried by the rest of the team. You want to be the guy who is, is everyone else is like, wow, like, dude, your contribution won us the game. Or like, dude, well done. You never let the team down. You made every tackle. You made every carry. Like, respect, right? Boom, respect. And that guy then feels like, man, like I did my part. And that's what we want to feel like, right? We want to contribute our gift to a team of great men attempting great things. That's, that comes by giving your gift. Yeah, that's so huge. And I think knowing what, you know, knowing what you're good at, um, knowing your gifting, knowing your archetype, you've written about that. I'll, again, link to it. Give people some some places to go where they can read more about that. I, the last thing I want to ask you, Scott, is about the... You had a Twitter uh, post the other day, and it was about how patriarchy and dominionism, unlike other things, it's enough to really unite a community. I've seen that very same thing. When I first started on Twitter... I, there were things that I would like, I would dabble in, like maybe things I'm interested in, um, working on the car, um, you know, whatever, just kind of manly competencies. But it wasn't really until I started, you know, I believed it, but until I started talking about Dominion, till I started talking about kind of the grander vision for men. So like, where do you aim your masculinity? Well, you've, you've got to be talking about a bigger mission than just, hey, I'm good at being a man. What it, but you know, what is that for? What is being good at a man? What is that for? So dominion. I wonder why, why is that so important? Dominion itself, patriarchy, that sort of thing. But why do you think it works so well for carrying the cultural weight to, to be a cohesive for a group of people, whereas other things don't? Yeah, I, I was saved into a charismatic church belief theology. And you were almost afraid, like, Oh, don't go to those guys. They're cessationists. Or, you know, uh, yeah. you almost start dividing. You, you divide who you can do life with on very theological bounds, you know, of like, oh, they believe slightly different on this. So, and if, you, and if you're seen talking to them, you're complicit and you're uns, you've lost your salvation, you know? And, and so for me, I was like, I came to this realization where I was like, whoa, like half the dudes I really like, you know, their lives are wholesome. They, they're talking about patriarchy. They're talking about dominion or, or post-mill. Post Half of these dudes are cessationists. And so in my past life, I would have been like, I can't be seen with you, you know? Whereas now, I'm like, whereas now I'm like, no, like what I do in the worship uh, of my own home is not something to divide over when we're actually got guys who are out there on the battlefield 
being cultural warlords. And it's like, yeah, we can, we can have a bus stop theology. You know, once we've kicked the clowns out, once we've brought uh, Eden to chaos, then we can argue about Calvinism and Arminianism. Then we can argue about Pentecostalism and cessationism. Then we can argue about all these things. But what's the root war that we're fighting right now is, is God's created established order or nature, which, which comes most uh, through patriarchy as a, a definition or term that we can use, uh, as opposed to complementarianism and egalitarianism. That's like yeah. a huge deal for us right now. And the second thing there is post-mill or dominion, um, as opposed to just looking like the culture and, and adopting the culture and being complicit in the culture. Uh, and also as opposed to escaping the culture and you know uh, running away and creating an enclave. It's like, no, we want dominion. We want heaven on earth now in our lifetime. And so when you look at that, at those two uh, value systems, it's like, whoa, there are tons of guys who we all believe in the same thing. We're all fighting in the same direction. For me to cut them off and, and spit on them and start shooting at them is a waste of everybody's time. You know, instead yeah. it's like, oh, we're all pulling in the right direction. Uh, yeah, you might smell and I, I don't like the way you say my name with that accent. I'd like you to say my name right. <laughs> and it's like, those are such trivial issues when we're at war. I think that's it. When you're at war, you overlook a lot of differences with your allies. Yeah. And when you're comfortable and you're at peace, then you can start talking and debating and kicking people out of your gentleman's golf club. And it's like, chaps, this is not a gentleman's golf club. We're at war. No, absolutely. And I have seen that some on Twitter on both sides. On the one hand, I've really noticed that I've even talked to like 1689 Baptist pastors who are post-mill. And th this question in the past, like, no God-fearing Baptist would allow a Presbyterian to take communion in his church. But now, like I asked this pastor and he's like, honestly, I don't even care. Are they on my team? Like, we're going to war together. This is going to get ugly. And they're my brother and we want the same thing. Um, and then on the flip side, I've, I've, I think there's still a bunch of tone deaf guys, but they're like, you know, making posts about how Presbyterians aren't really Christians and, um, you know, these trivial arguments about time and mode of baptism. And I think it's exactly like you said, when it's peacetime and the army is in camp, they fight about all sorts of stuff. But when your brother is taking bullets for you, we're not fighting about that anymore. And we need wartime leaders. You know, that's, that's unfortunately the thing. We have a lot of peacetime leaders who are still stirring up peacetime issues. And it's like, guys, you know, you can see that with the, the guys who are rising to prominence right now. It's like the war is on and we want wartime leaders. And it's like those yes. are the guys who are calling tribes into alignment, into alliances, confederations. And it's like we want, we want tribal victory. And so we're willing to overlook a lot of things that in peacetime Yes, rightly so. We can purity spiral over. Yeah, it's huge. And I think that's where you're seeing even guys like Russ Moore with the ERLC and the SBC, the world's at war and you're talking about like finger painting, you know, and on the flip side, you have guys who are Tom Askell and others who are like, no, we're about to kick A and take names and um, we're going to own, we're going to own our convention. We're going to own it. Um, we're going to fight. We're going to come back on our shield or with it. And that's fine. And I think that's, that's so essential for, for culture. It can be a really positive thing.
and it's really been funny as well on Twitter because like I'll repost, I'll repost Baptist guys, I'll repost Presbyterian guys, I'll repost trad cats, I'll even post Mormon guys of like, and and I think old me would have been afraid of like if I retweet a Mormon, yeah, they'll think I'm a Mormon, and if I retweet a Baptist, they'll think it's like I'm at the point now where I'm like, this guy's wholesome, he's fighting the culture, like that's a positive vision. I'm gonna put it out there. You know, and then yeah, I I think there's a, a momentum now of guys going like, okay, it's not time to bash the presbies, it's not time to bash the trad cats. Like, let's actually go and do the things. Let's go do yeah the things that take dominion. Let's do the cultural uh, hard game, the long game. Uh, you know, and and that's so encouraging, man. I I really feel there is a a, a real rising up of of a, a a cultural awareness. You know, guys aren't stupid anymore and thinking that oh we're all we're all in this together. We're the institutions are ours. Clown world is safe. You know, journalists are truthful. It's like no, no, no. There's a hard reality. Guys are waking up. Yeah, I think the the uh, mask certainly came off last year, um, and so people were responding, as you said, in, in kind. Well, Scott, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, as I said, I'm going to include links uh, for everything that you've written, and you also have been doing video series. Those are really awesome. Uh, people can find those, I think, on YouTube, right? Yeah, just under Scott Tange on YouTube. And then I wonder, do you have anywhere, like if you had like, and maybe maybe you you know, can think of them right now, but do you have like five books that you would say, these are your must reads? I'm just curious because I, I know I've read a lot of your stuff and it, I immediately think, what is this guy reading? Because I love it and I want to read it. So I read a lot of biographies. So latest one I've been reading, uh, Hudson Taylor. Okay. He's a, a English missionary to China. And I love, I just love old books, right? I love old yeah. dudes before po- political correctness became a thing. Um, so, so loved uh, Hudson Taylor's biography. Um, I loved Donald's biography. Um, and I'm trying to think who else. Um, yeah. What, I'll, what I'll, about like the archetypal stuff? Where, where is that young? Is it, where are you getting it? Yeah. So man, I've been, I was a nerd for Myers-Briggs and yeah. uh, DISC and all that stuff for, you know, the last 10 years. So a lot of this is, uh, oh, I tell you what, you know, what, a huge one for me, uh, my wife, uh, bought a book called um, Created to Be as Helpmeet, which I thoroughly recommend for all of your wives. Um, by Yeah, Debbie Pearl. Debbie Pearl, thank you. And in that, she, she describes the three archetypes of men um, as the king, uh, the priest, and the visionary. Um, and a lot of that kind of got me spurred and, and, and thinking mm. on the whole things of dominion, uh, of domain, yeah. of our different domains. Um, Vox Day is a blogger that, uh, he wrote a series called the social sexual hierarchy. Uh, and he breaks men into four archetypes of the alpha, the bravo, the delta and the sigma. And so all of these kind of things have been percolating around for a long time for me to, to bring me to the point now of being like, wow, like God created domain. So now when I read, you know, I'm, I'm camping in, in the book of, uh, Samuel at the moment with, with David and Saul. And, and starting to see these guys through the domain of kingship, the domain of priesthood, the domain of the prophet, the domain of the soldier. Uh, you know, so just applying all of this old stuff to, to it, it's kind of like just a, you know, applying one layer with another layer that, you know, and making the connections. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, uh, this Vox Day, is he still, still writing current stuff? 
Yeah, I'll I'll just pop on. You know, it, it was it's a shame him and uh, and Owen Benjamin were both banned from YouTube and Twitter. Uh, so that was my main way of keeping keeping up with him. But I'll just pop onto his his blog every once in a while. He, you know, while I don't agree with with a lot of his uh, style, uh, I I thoroughly enjoy his way of thinking. And he is a yeah. he is an ardent patriarchal nationalist. You know, so uh, maybe put it this way, he is he's a lot he's what I don't know ten twenty years older than us, and so he just approaches it from an older perspective that's not as as edgy as we would like it. Well, awesome, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for coming on the show. Eric, brother, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. And as always, we'll include in our show notes some of the resources, books, and links to Scott Tungay's material, uh, including his Twitter feed. I would encourage you to check that out. A lot of great material, a lot of great thoughts. You can find more of it as well at scotttungay.com. And again, those will be in the show notes. A special thanks, as always, to all of our Patreon supporters. More and more each week, it's been such a huge blessing. Uh, After about a year of doing the show, I think we're at about 130,000 downloads, which is awesome. I think most shows are right around 5,000 downloads. So again, appreciate everybody's support. If you're not yet a Patreon member, you can sign up on Patreon for the Hard Men Podcast, or you can go and subscribe on ericcon.com and become a member supporting this work. We definitely appreciate that. And wherever you listen to your podcast, be sure to leave a five-star review. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.